Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of The Simon Law Firm, Tim Cronin, personal injury trial attorney at The Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. I'm Tim Cronin. We're here today with our guest, Fern Wolf. Hi, Fern. Hi. Thanks for joining us. Uh, you've written and lectured on an important topic that we thought our audience would enjoy hearing from you on. The way I summarized it after looking at your article, how the rules of professional conduct overlap with the civil rules regarding written discovery. That, that might be kind of a, a sterilized version of what many of us feel much of the time is that there's a lot of discovery abuse, I'll call it, going on. People who don't want to cooperate and answer discovery, written discovery, and you've raised the issue of maybe that's not just a problem based upon the civil rules themselves, but maybe there is an important overlap in the ethics rules. Is that fairly summarizing what's going on? Yes, that was a great summary. All right. So I met you several years ago when you presented on, the, on this topic at the Simon Law Firm continuing education session. And what you said hit a raw nerve with me, and I share your concerns. And I know we just talked before we began recording. I know Tim shares your concerns. The primary aim of the legal system is to promptly and efficiently resolve cases. And so you're pointing at something that gets in the way of that. Exactly. The rules of discovery are there to, so that at least that's what I thought. <laughs> that's what I learned in civil procedure way back when. The rules of discovery are there so that we share information and there, there are no Perry Mason surprises. Uh, when we get to trial, we all know what each side has and hopefully we settle because we know what each side has and there are no surprises. But yet getting there, it has become a struggle because there's so much gamesmanship and it seems that the rules say that there is not supposed to be such gamesmanship because we have a rule that, well, we have especially rule, they all start for, rule 4-3.2 about expediting litigation. And it is fundamental that we're, we as attorneys are supposed to expedite litigation. And when I get discovery responses, like I brought some today as examples, that basically give me no answer for months, that is the opposite of expediting litigation as a plaintiff's attorney, and that is really all I do is plaintiff's side work. I represent employees in employment disputes. Could you tell us a little bit about oh, your firm before we go sure. further? Sure. So I'm a partner in Silverstein and & Wolf, and there was a predecessor law firm, and then I worked in a larger law firm, and before that I was with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, and we represent employees in employment disputes. So that, that's all I do at this point late in my career. All right. And then here's the housekeeping sure. moment. We're going to be talking about Missouri rules of, of professional responsibility, but we have audience all over the United States. We're going to be mentioning the Missouri rules by, by number. Our ethics rules all fall within rule four, and the way we number them is four dash something, for instance, four dash 8.4. And that refers quite often very closely or exactly to an ABA model rule. And so 
many states base their ethics rules upon the ABA model rules. So if you just ignore the four, oh, okay. you'll All be right. you'll be maybe exactly or mostly on the same rule that we're talking about. I should tell you this. I predate taking ethics in law school. It was that's how old I am. So you're you're not certified ethical. Well, I eventually, because I became a member of a different bar, I had to take after I was in practice many years, I had to take the ethics exam for the first time after never having taken ethics in law school. So that's the first time I learned it. It was on the Missouri Bar as a subject, but it was not a separate exam back in 1978. And it was not mandatory because I think it became mandatory right after Watergate. And I started law school in 75. Watergate was just right around then. So it wasn't mandatory yet. And my law school did not require it. I know way more law students that have failed the MPRE, at least on their first time, than have failed the bar. Like a lot of students failed the MPRE their first time. I took it to become an Illinois licensed attorney about 15 years ago. And the woman I was sitting next to was shaking and said, this is my fourth time trying to pass it. And I felt so bad for her. But, you know, you keep, you, it's possible to not fail that. I, I took it because of Illinois. And then when I got into Texas by reciprocity, it's the only thing I had to do. I did, when I was preparing for this lecture way back when, when I first gave it, I did look into when all these requirements came to be because I couldn't remember when I first learned about these rules. But I was pretty sure I never learned about them until I took the Barbary class. And that was the first time I ever even knew that there was a such such a thing as the rules of professional conduct. So, well, let me let me set the yes, stage right. with a with a cartoon. Okay, I teach law students civil procedure, civil civil litigation leading up to trial, and a lot of them come in with the idea that for written discovery, it's pretty simple. You send out some written discovery, you wait thirty days. And then a package arrives either physically or in your email, and you get all the information you requested. So you're, you're laughing. That would be yeah, that, so, like, so let's, let's talk about wh- why that's not true. What, what goes on typically? Well, typically, um, the first thing that happens is on day 29, um, you get a phone call. Is that right? You or get an email. A, or e- an email, right. God forbid there's a phone call. Email, can I have more time? And, of course, you say yes because there but for the grace of god go i and they'll get them they'll get more time anyway and so you do you give them time for the answers and the objections yes because it doesn't make a difference they'll they'll get the the time anyway and so or if i don't they will make the objections anyway and they'll give me crummy answers so yes and so i give them more time and then like in the example that i brought i got another request for more time and don't worry was the defense counsel said to me, we'll give you more time, too. And I said, okay, I'll take more time, too. And now we're also going cutting up against a federal discovery cutoff date and more time. And then eventually I get these answers. And I, as I was explaining before, and I will explain again, I do employment law. And sometimes the key piece of information in a case where an employee is discharged is who made the decision because you have to have the decision maker's motive. So my standard interrogatory three in virtually every case is who decided to discharge plaintiff, include each person's last known address, phone number, blah, blah. 
Answer, company will supplement this response. This is after three months. If they don't know who decided to fire my client from the get-go, something is wrong. They should really know by this time. And so they're playing games. Did that say the word objection on it somewhere? No. There's no objection. How could it be objectionable? I have had objections to that interrogatory, by the way. I have had objections to who decided to fire my client. That's why this interrogatory just, I winnowed it down. I used to ask a bunch of information in the same interrogatory, but now I have three interrogatories. Who decided to discharge? Give me the date the decision was made. I often get an objection to that one. And then for each person you named, his reason, his or her reason for deciding. Those three interrogatories, you cannot believe the number of objections I get. Yes, I can. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Of course you can. I mean, this is key. I don't know in personal injury because I don't do it. Uh, What There must be something key like that, like who cut into the plaintiff or something like that. But it's, I mean, everything is objected to on every basis, constant requests for extensions, promises there won't be another one, or just not answering the discovery and not even asking for an extension and not giving a date they'll answer. It's, I mean, I never get meaningful substantive answers and responses to interrogatories almost ever anymore without having to go to court. And you go every time? Do you, are you able to work it out? It's a decision out? based on whether it's worthwhile to go up or I'm going to just be able to handle it with the first few depots that I take. Because it's because it's increasingly difficult to get timely hearings on motions to compel. Yes, it is. It's very hard to get judges' times. And I understand that they're busy people, but at least it's been my experience. They really don't like discovery disputes. And in one case I have, there, we had several discovery disputes, and the judge referred us to a special master, and I wasn't thrilled about that, and I'm not going to say much more, but that's costly. It's, it denies access to the court. I, I'll say plenty about it. Okay. If neither party is asking for it, I've seen it happen. I don't think you're allowed to do it, and yet it is being done. It depends on the jurisdiction. And... It is costly, and that is oftentimes more to the detriment of the plaintiff than it is the defendant with means and assets. And taking up motions to compel is part of the the job of the court. And I understand our judges are too busy. I get it. Like, I'm not trying to be critical, but this is – it ends up causing more problems being brought to the court when discovery abuses and gamesmanship are tolerated. It encourages it. Right. It does encourage it. And in fact, I, I, I'm sure you don't remember, but the way I started that talk way back when, when I had that lecture was with this little example. I said, way back when we used to go to hockey games, my family was really into sports. And I once asked my dad, why is there so much fighting in hockey? And we never see it at, at the White Sox games. And he said, because there's penalties in hockey. And took me a while to figure that one out, but if you think about it, we have sanctions, we have little little punishments mm-hmm. for discovery abuse, little punishments, but we never do the big thing, like violations of rules of ethics, and that would stop it. Or strike pleadings. Strike pleadings once in a blue moon. I mean, there is a great hesitancy by courts to even issue appropriate sanctions after repeated abuses. Yes, 
Yeah. And again, it depends on the court. It depends on the judge. But in general, great hesitancy, which again, encourages that it's getting worse. Like by the year, it's getting worse. Yeah. And there's less tolerance to take up the issues by the court because they're overworked and so busy, especially after COVID when there's, it seems like they're still trying to catch up. I agree with that. It's... It, it does seem to be getting worse, and I keep thinking maybe it's just because I'm getting older or something like that. But, no, it does seem to be getting worse. And maybe something – maybe because we don't see each other as much anymore. Yeah. But before COVID, we, we would actually physically have to see each other. And there was this couple of years when we never even saw each other, so we didn't have to deal with each other as human beings. And everybody can just be a paper tiger. Right. Yeah, exactly. I am a firm believer in picking up the telephone. And so these discovery disputes where they wouldn't give me the who the decision maker was, <laughs> I have a co-counsel in the case. And he's the one who, who made the phone call. But we did do it by phone call. And he said to me, well, should I send an email? And I said, no, do not send an email. I do not want to do litigation by letter. Um, plus, then defense counsel, all they do is they start attaching emails to motions. Yep. And it's just better to do it over the telephone. One thing I do do with my discovery disputes is I, I do a spreadsheet. I, I love spreadsheets. And so I do a discovery dispute spreadsheet and I might send it to them. And then when I do my motion to compel, it's all on the spreadsheet. But I can give anybody that if they, if they want it. Judges seem to like it because it's really easy to follow. But but I do find that there is just a lot of abuse. I think one of the things that has increased the abuse is what was written into the rules is this thing called proportionality. Uh-huh. Do you have in personal injury? I'm not sure if you get that a lot. But. Yeah. It w- I mean, it didn't really used to be a thing, but now it's been written in and it's I, I hear it all the time. And it's, right. You don't get to unilaterally decide the potential value of my client's case and then say, so I don't get discovery on it. I disagree. I think it's worth more than you do. So I need the discovery. One of the comments in the proportionality rule is that we recognize that certain cases are inherently not worth as much as others. And yeah. mention employment cases. So, and there's a value to empl- a societal value to employment cases, but they're not going to be worth a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And so you can't look at proportionality the same way. But we get in this set that I brought, I asked for one year's worth of emails about my client, and he wasn't even there the full year. Mm-hmm. And they said the proportionality was difficult. How difficult? I think it would be more difficult to sort out the emails that they wanted to limit it to. Yeah. Plus, what defendants do not do, and I guess it could be plaintiffs too, is one of the rules is you're supposed to give what you do believe is relevant. So if I ask for something that covers three years and the defendant thinks only one year is relevant, they're supposed to give me that one year. Yeah. And they don't. They just blanket. And then they don't give a privilege log, even though they're supposed to give a privilege log. They'll claim work product and attorney client. And they're supposed to say what it was withheld. And they don't say what was withheld. And I can't move to compel until I clean up their answers. I have to know what they withheld, what's subject to the privilege, and 
it just it's very time consuming and then getting other people on the phone and then my experience is that the attorney that I speak with always has to I'm sorry I'll have to call you back in a week I have to talk to I don't have authority to make it don't have authority (laughs) yeah can I get someone on the phone who does have authority that's that's what I get so it does it takes time and then the big leveler I guess or the big problem for us is we're running against a discovery cutoff date yeah. And so if it's short, then they have used up all of our time and I lose the chance to do follow-up, a follow-up set of discovery, which is what I really want. Or have all the information so you can start taking depositions right. early enough. Yeah. I can't take a deposition if I don't know who the decision maker right. is. And then there's continuances. And I'm looking at these rules of professional conduct, uh-huh. Kern. Yes. None of these get followed. Right. None of them. Right. None of these get I'm not saying by every lawyer, but by plenty of them. And part of what you mentioned, Rule 3.2. Yes. Expediting litigation. I think there's a couple words you left off when you when when you (laughs) quoted the rule. A lawyer shall make reasonable efforts to expedite litigation consistent with the interests of the client. The defendant's interest is not to expedite litigation. Right. We were talking about that. (laughs) So in one of the cases that. I was talking about the defendant wants, the company wants to see if it has insurance. And so consistent with the client's interests is to delay until they know whether somebody else can foot the bill. And that really is a problem. Yeah. Or if they think they're going to have to foot the bill. And look, we all know oftentimes defense counsel is answering to the insurance company, not to their actual client. And they get to hold if they think they're going to be good for it the more they delay they get to hold on to their money and earn interest on it and that's where a lot of this problem comes and just the the structure of how attorneys on the other side of the aisle get paid is by the hour and so obstructing and dragging things out and getting as much billables out of a case as possible is in their interest when our interest is exactly the opposite. Give me the information. Let's be efficient. Let's resolve this dispute as quickly as we can. Wouldn't it be in the interest of the judicial system? I agree. Yeah. <laughs> I agree with you. <laughs> to get things done. To get things done. So that all of our judges didn't have a thousand cases on their docket because everything drags out for three years and you have to go out constantly for discovery fights. And there aren't punishments when you didn't get a privilege log like you're supposed to get and you've been trying for three months to get it and then it's just like okay give them a privilege log well of course they're going to drag this out for three to four months every time when that's the only response is okay now finally do it well they've delayed it for four months i guess i'm going to file motions to compel immediately upon getting answers from now on but you can't right because the rules say you must meet and confer and they always say in person or over the phone as as though people meet in person anymore but sometimes the rules take a little bit of time to catch up but so you know you make this phone call and it it does take a while to get in touch with somebody and then you finally do yeah and they need to go check with and they need to go check with somebody and then they need to check with somebody again Right. Eric correctly predicted that I would get upset about this topic. <laughs> you're, sitting, you're sitting calmly without a seatbelt on your chair. Can we, can we have a level yeah. of who gets more upset? Yeah. 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 Let me ask you, in terms of percentage of the cases you handle, I know you haven't really calculated, but is it more than half of them have these problems? How, how, what, 
What percentage of your cases have problems like this? Well, I would say most. Most have this problem. And sometimes, and I feel like, especially if I'm dealing with a larger law firm, that they will have an associate handling the discovery, and they're basically using me to teach their associate the rules. But someone who's been told, object, object, object. And, but it's most, most cases. Now, now, there are some exceptions. There are some lawyers who do everything they are supposed to do, and they write very thorough interrogatory answers. And they, and this goes a little bit into that other article I wrote about how to respond to requests for production of documents, they will, they will list what documents are responsive to what request. I mean, they do everything they are supposed to. But those are few and far between. And you know what? In those cases, I actually worry because I think they probably have a good defense and they know it. And so they're telling me everything. Yeah. Tim, I'm sure you've seen the general objection section at the top along with the individual objections. Uh, sometimes I've seen every item objected to, even without, even if you set aside this general objection session, yeah. every individual, like 50, 25 interrogatories, 25 requests for production, every one of them's got an objection on it. And that doesn't always happen, or even probably mostly, but I'd say 75% of them Get, yeah. get individual objections, and then they slap the general objection section on. Which is incredibly inappropriate. I mean, that is not provided for in the rules. You have to specifically state your objections. You can't, you can't just say, here's two pages of objections. Also, I object to all your definitions. I incorporate all those herein. So I move to strike those generally, and it gets granted. What's your general, what's your gut feeling on what percentage of your cases have these sorts of problems? I would say four or five years ago, the, this general objection section, almost right. none of my cases had that problem. And so this is clearly being taught at defense CLEs. It very clearly is. What about the— Just like reptile motions never used to get filed, filed, and now they're filed in every case, and they're verbatim. So I never used to have it. I'd say about half. I'm fortunate enough to work frequently with some very good, highly esteemed— counsel that I see frequently in other cases that doesn't play in games like this, and they don't do these general objections. So I'd say about a third to half of the time I see them, but depending on the type of case and the type of firm you're dealing with, you can predict if you're going to get it. I mean, if it's one of these big national defense firms that represents these huge multi-billion dollar you're going to get pages of general objections and objections to every single definition, and you're going to get objections to every single interrogatory and every single request for production and then you don't know what they withheld or didn't like you have no way to figure that out right absolutely no idea and i i will talk to the young associate and say you know i'm going to you can't do general objections they're not allowed and they'll say nobody else ever has a problem with these no, yes they do yeah, yeah they do <laughs> i'm not the first person to do this also I don't care. Like right. that is me. Other right. people don't take you up on not following the rules. Right. That is uh, meaningless to me. And then they do withdraw them most yeah. of the time. They do. It's very rare that I have to get a ruling on, and I will, but I do just say, judge from the Southern District of Illinois will not allow these. These will be gone. And they will get rid of them, but I've wasted time because, again, I don't know what they've given me. And then they answer subject to objection. 
And in the federal rules, one of the comments even deals with this was designed to alleviate the problem of parties answering subject to objection, where you don't know because you're supposed to say if you withheld anything based on the objection. And so often they haven't withheld anything based on the objection. And yet they don't want to tell you that. Right. Right. But they're supposed to, at least in federal, they are supposed to. They're supposed to. In, in, the, in the city of St. Louis, there are repeated orders. It is a like a generally accepted rule. You are not allowed to answer subject to an objection. If you object and answer subject to it, your objection is waived. And any time I've brought that up with a city judge that has been upheld, yeah, you have multiple orders from this circuit. That is, that's our going practice. Those objections are stricken. And that's the way it should be. Unle but I don't bring it up, Fern, if, if they object, but then make clear I am providing the information in this time period and what I'm withholding is X, Y, and Z. Unless I want to have that fight about the scope, I don't go say they waived, they waived their objection because they've clarified what they're answering and not. But we fight about these things for months and months and months, and we waste all of our time. Right. And that's I mean, that is what the comments say. If if you if you are answering part of it, you just make clear what you are answering and what you are not. So if you're objecting to 10 years, you say, I am objecting to the temporal scope of this interrogatory, but I am not objecting to five years or something along those lines or the scope. I'm objecting to giving you information about any facility that's a big issue in employment law other than the one in Springfield, Illinois or something, but I'll give you everything for Springfield, Illinois. But if they don't tell you, how do you know? Yeah. So is this a good time for us to let you take the podium, so to speak, and tell us about the ethics rules that you think bear on these sure. abuses? Sure. So I guess nobody out there in Radioland has a copy of my handout. So I can't tell them. But the rules that I had highlighted were just there's a general rule. And I, my best guess is that most states have this general rule on misconduct. And so under Rule 8.4, you're not supposed to violate the rules of misconduct and or help anybody violate the, the rules of misconduct. 8.4C is you're not supposed to engage in conduct involving dishonesty, fraud, deceit, or misrepresentation. That's anywhere. So I'm not supposed to lie to you about anything. And it, it seems that that's a catch-all, sort of like the IRS. If they want to get you on something, they will. And, and they can always, or in representing sales representatives, they can always find something wrong with your expense account. So This isn't yeah. even for, in, like, in, in practicing your profession. This right. is in living your life. This is living. I can't lie to you about. Yeah. I really like that tie or something, or something <laughs> like. That. But nobody's going to bother. But if they want to get you, it seems to me they could. This is that general catch-all. Yeah. And then, three point one. It it looks like it's only about. Well, three point one is bringing meritorious claims and contentions, and it looks like it's really about filing a, a bad lawsuit or raising a bad defense. But when I read it, it looked to me like it also involved discovery. And because it says, a lawyer shall not bring or defend a proceeding or assert or controvert an issue therein unless there's a good faith basis. So then there's a comment and you're not supposed to abuse the legal procedure. And I think that can also go 
towards discovery. And other ones are better fit to discovery, but it does seem to apply to discovery, just making a bad, I hate to use bad faith, but making an improper claim of relevance when something like who made the decision to fire somebody in an employment case is objectionable. Obviously, that's relevant. Um, so it's an issue therein. It, it's it's the issue typically expediting litigation. And as you pointed out, consistent with the interests of the client is the big qualifier. But the comment to expediting litigation. We're on 3.2. 3.2. I'm sorry. The so 3.2, we talked about before, a lawyer should make reasonable efforts to expedite litigation consistent with the interests of the client. The comment, comment one, talks about dilatory practices. Realizing financial or other benefit from otherwise improper delay in litigation is not a legitimate interest of the client. So I think that is how, as a plaintiff's lawyer, if we were using this rule, or if a court or an ethics board were using this rule, they would say, well, just because you're trying to save your client money, you can't delay litigation just because the rule itself says consistent with the interests of litigation, consistent with the interests of the client, because comment one says that realizing financial or other benefit from improper delay is not a legitimate interest of the client. Well. I guess legitimate is the key word, although the rule doesn't have the word legitimate in it. The comment has the word legitimate. So I like this. It is not a justification that similar conduct is often tolerated by the bench and bar. Yes. Can I ask you a question, Flora? Yes. So these are ethical. It, it's always been my understanding that I'm not allowed to bring up the potential violation of an ethical rule with opposing counsel to gain an advantage in litigation or whatever the words are. So I can't say, hey, rule 4.3.2 and, and cite it to him and go, you're not following that. You better get me answers to this discovery. Am I wrong about that? Can I do that? Well, I can't give you an opinion. Yeah. <laughs> I'm on one of those regional committees, so I can't give you an opinion. I don't know that anything in the rules says you can't, but I've always been personally of the opinion that it is sort of like threatening criminal prosecution for yeah. civil gain. If you think somebody's doing something wrong, you actually have an obligation under, I think it's rule eight, to report it. To report it to to the bar, to not report not, it, not just to not to the other side. The other right, you have an obligation in in Illinois. Yeah. The one when I got licensed in Illinois, I had to have an ethics interview before I waved in. Or no, I didn't wave in. I had to take the test, Be, but I still had to have an ethics interview. And the one question they asked is, "Do you know about In Ray Himmel?" And that's a famous case in Illinois for not reporting yeah. somebody else's ethical violation. People talk about Himmel obligations in Illinois. Yes, all the time. right. There's it's, opinions about it. It's the big deal. Critical in of judges for not reporting trial judges for not reporting really ethical issues. Interesting. Yeah. I did. I didn't know that. So, if you if you think something is bad enough to threaten somebody in Illinois, then it seems to me you ought to be reporting it. I did call the ethics hotline one time in Illinois to ask if I had an obligation to report. I was that nervous. I always thought that it you 
have to do it after your case is over. So I guess it's it's confidential. They who told made the report, but people they're gonna know. And you, it's like a rabbit hole. Like you, you end up going down. Like okay, everybody now is just reporting each other to the bar for ethical obligations for being dilatory in discovery. So I don't know the one that I called about. Yeah. Um, in fact, the advice I got from the ethics person was wait till the case is over. And did you ask for sanctions? The answer was no. Wait till the case is over. And I understand that in Missouri, at least under the former OC Office of Chief Disciplinary Counsel, it was pretty rare that they would ever look into an ethical complaint uh, during pending, if there was pending litigation. Yeah, um, that makes sense. To because otherwise, how do they know what side to come down on? And they can always look at it afterwards. So, right, there's so many things now that seem to fall under these rules. But if there were a few examples of judges taking actions, judges can report, and they're supposed to report. You just told me they have done some reporting. They're I didn't. To. I, I mean, they're they're members of the bar too. Right. Yeah. And I didn't know judges that there were opinions in Illinois involving judges other than the infamous in Ray Himmel case. Yeah. And so if there were a few examples of that, I think lawyers would maybe become a little more careful about what they objected to. Uh -huh. um, and we'd be, as I said, when I gave my little lecture last time, we'd be a little more like baseball. The other day in the playoff game, in the American League playoff game, somebody hit somebody with a pitch, I wasn't following that carefully, and was tossed out of the game and was going to be suspended. And because they take it seriously, they take violence yeah. seriously. And we don't take this kind of misconduct that seriously. We have little, little punishments. Maybe somebody, like the last time I got any decent sanction, somebody had to pay to redepose a witness. That's not a real sanction. No. It's just not. Right. And I, I, part of the problem is the more it is obviously tolerated by the courts, there are f companies or entities that are frequent litigants, often as defendants, and they are going to hire a firm that is willing to engage in the kind of tactics that they want. And if the lawyers won't do it, they know they're going to lose that client. And so I'm not saying it's always lawyer-driven. I think a lot of times it's client-driven, where they're like, you're going to object to everything. We're going to draw all this out. And it puts those lawyers in a tough position. Well. But they have the rules of professional conduct. Right, they, they do. And I, so our kinds of cases are very often not insured. Yeah. More and more they are. Bigger companies get employment practices liability insurance, but it's a rider. So... If we're against a state and local government, there typically is insurance, but we don't deal with the kinds of things that you deal with in personal injury cases. So where maybe an adjuster is making the calls. We're big self-insured companies. Oh, it's actually worse. Is that what's self-insured companies? Uh, but or yeah, but I mean, general in-house general in-house general counsel yeah. saying behave this way. I mean, I'm not on those phone calls, right. but it's sure, it's, I'm, that's sure the impression I get. And I have buddies on the other end of the, the bench that are, 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 right, 
that that's that tell me that's what it's like. Look, we have to do what our client is wanting us to do. That's a repeat client. It's our biggest client. And I'm like, well, you don't have to do every. In fact, you have an obligation to tell them you can't do certain things. But I don't know. This is this is all immensely frustrating to maybe all of us about what to, what to do about this situation. That conduct is flagrant in many places that could be reported isn't and the world just keeps going on and on the way it is i think really the only the only way i could think of to end it is to have consequences that are serious you know i i wanted to say the only time i ever had to Mm -hmm. mention a rule was when i was accused of wrongful conduct where I was accused of communicating with somebody represented by counsel, and my opposing attorney didn't know the rule had changed many years ago, and they thought in Illinois mm-hmm. that you could that somebody was in a control not group. in the control group. But that's not the rule. That. It's a former constituent, yeah. and former employees are open. Completely open. Yes, completely. And it changed years ago. Even, but even current employees, if they're not in the control group, right. Exactly. And so I, we were on the phone with a judge back when in federal court, the magistrates did discovery. And I said, oh, I've got something to bring up. Yeah. I've got a threatening letter. And I explained what had happened. And I said, I didn't violate the rule. The Southern District of Illinois uses the Illinois rules and blah, blah, blah. Um, so, you know, I did bring up the rules at that point. And it was my response in, to the threatening letter from a big law firm was report me. So, <laughs> um, you know, because it wasn't a violation of the yeah. rules um, and they should report. And so it is troubling because you want to tell people, remind them of their ethical obligation. But maybe the courts need to be the ones dealing with it. Maybe maybe a judge should be here. I don't know. But maybe the courts need to be dealing with it in sanctioning people more seriously. But it won't. I mean, the disciplinary groups, you know, the OCDC in Missouri or the ARDC that everybody fears a thick letter from the ARDC in Illinois. I mean, they don't do anything on their own. They have to get a complaint. And we just typically don't make complaints about other lawyers in the midst of litigation. And then it's over. The case is over. You've gotten your client is satisfied and you typically don't make a complaint and the concern also is i make a complaint they're just going to muddy the waters by by going and trying to find something in the litigation to make a complaint against me and no matter how frivolous i'm going to start preemptively attaching your ethics in discovery handout to my written discovery that i send out in the beginning of the case because I'm not accusing anybody of anything. I'm reminding them of the ethical rules of professional conduct. I see what you're going to be attached. I'll take your name off of it. Okay. I'll make my own handout. As a reminder, please be advised, as I'm sure you are, of the attached rules of professional conduct as it relates to discovery. I might start doing that. I might get a chuckle. We're going to take a break here. We've been talking about discovery uses and abuses with Fern Wolf. Thank you for joining us so far, and thank you for agreeing to come back. My pleasure. This has been another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. I'm Tim Cronin. See you next time. The Jury Is Out is brought to you by The Simon Law Firm. At The Simon Law Firm PC, we believe in the power of pooling resources in order to create powerful results. 
We often lend our trial skills and experience to lawyers around the country to achieve better results for their clients. Our attorneys welcome the opportunity to work with you on your case, offering vast resources, seasoned litigators, and a sterling reputation. You can contact us at 314-241-2929. And if you enjoyed the podcast, feel free to share your thoughts with John, Tim, and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. And subscribe today because the best lawyers never stop learning.